Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backpack. Backchat. Backchat. Your alternative to talk back. It's Saturday, 17th of October, and you're listening to Backchat, where we break down the news you don't want to miss. I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. And I'm Chantelle Alkuri, your new co-host of Backchat. Welcome, Chantelle. I'm really excited to be co-piloting with you. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. So what have we got on the show today? Well, first up, we're unpacking the new English proficiency requirements for Australian visas with Ali Mojtahadi from the Immigration Advice and Rights Centre. After that, we're speaking to journalist Ange McCormack about her findings from an explosive investigation into Tinder. It's about how the dating app is failing to stop predators on the platform and help survivors of sexual assault. But as always, we want to hear from you. How do you feel about the mandatory English lessons? Do you think it's actually fair? Join in on the conversation and text us in on 0409 945 945 or you can tweet us at BackchatFBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. An announcement in the budget last week has shocked Australians and their loved ones across the country. 500 hours of English language lessons will soon be required for migrant partners seeking permanent residency in Australia. The implications of this policy will be far-reaching since the finer details are still a little murky at this stage. Despite the lessons allegedly being free, the visa costs will rise by over $400 when introduced in late 2021. Helping us unpack and explain all these changes is Ali Mojtahedi, Principal Solicitor for the Immigration Advice and Rights Centre. Ali, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on your show. Can you start off by giving us a quick breakdown of what a partner visa is from the recent budget? Um, well, the partner visa is designed to allow uh, people to live with their Australian uh, citizen or permanent resident uh, spouse or de facto partners. Um, and traditionally, the main requirement um, for this visa is that there are two people who are in a genuine and continuing relationship. So those who are applying for the partner visa um, in late 2021 will need to take an English proficiency test and 500 hours of English lessons um, uh, if if they're not up to scratch with their English skills. So what implications do you think this will have on migrants? Uh, Well, I think it would um, inevitably result in people who can't satisfy the English, the new English requirements. Um, to being denied a visa and um, uh, then facing separation from their partners. But I would like to also mention that uh, I think the hardship uh, won't be limited to people who can't speak English. Um, I, I really don't think much thought has been given by the government to how this will impact people who won't be able to meet the requirements because of issues going to their own literacy mental capacity, age, intellectual disability, um, but also people, in, and and I, I should say, I think particularly women who might be in um, abusive or controlling relationships who may not be able to attend classes um, or learn English because of it. But to clarify, partners and spouses won't have their visas rejected if they're not yet proficient in English, right? Um, my understanding is that these new... Um, laws will be will only impact those who make the application um, in late 2021. 
So do we know what these lessons will look like and how they'll take place? Um, at this stage, I, I, I don't think there's been enough information um, given to us to have a, a good sense of what would be expected. But um, what we do know is that, well, what we understand is that a person would meet these requirements if they can demonstrate a certain level of English or attend a certain number of hours of English classes. So I'm super into languages and I've been really trying to improve my French over this pandemic and over isolation. Um, but 500 hours of lessons doesn't to me personally seem like enough time. So do you think it is enough time? Um, <laughs> I I don't know. I, I don't know if that's going to be enough time. But the, the comment I would, would make is that if, if if the government does have concerns about people's uh, ability to speak the language, um, I really don't think denying them a visa and separating them from their family is the answer. Um, I think the, the sensible approach would be to offer support, ongoing support, to allow them to, to settle um, if, if that is a concern. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio. If you've just joined us, we're talking to Ali Mojdahedi from the Immigration Advice and Rights Centre about the new mandatory English language tests for those seeking an Australian visa. Earlier, we asked your thoughts on the matter, and we've heard from a listener named Game in Redfern who sent in a voice memo. Here is that comment from Game in Redfern. So the thing is, as an international student myself, I find it really, really um, beneficial to know like just a little bit of basic English skills for me like to get around and stuff. I can't imagine an international student or even a partner moving to Australia without knowing English at all. If they know just a little bit of English, like it would aid them so much. On that note, Acting Minister of Immigration Andrew Tudge claims that 500 hours of language lessons will not only benefit the economy, but also help with social cohesion. On the surface, this sounds beneficial, Ali, but is this the whole picture? Um, well, in the, the ability to, um, to satisfy the functional English requirements is a little bit more complicated. Um, but I, I should also make this point that, um, that there's additional hurdles to actually satisfying the 500 hours because a newly arrived migrant um, for example, won't have access to Centrelink. Um, there were changes made over the past, um, I think it was about two years ago, which um, which uh, pre- prevents a, a person holding a permanent partner visa from accessing Centrelink for a period of four years. So in that time, um, you know, anyone who's arrived really has to go out and start working. So I really don't know when um, anyone's going to get the time to go and um, uh, sit in 500 hours of English lessons. So, Ali, have you heard any anecdotes recently of partners separated at the moment and um, some of the mental and emotional and financial impacts of being apart? Um, absolutely. Um, uh, many, many examples. But in addition to the mental health aspects and the financial aspects, um, there, are, um, there are people that, um, in Australia who are separated and who are struggling to take care of um, children, for example, by themselves. Um, who are struggling uh, to attend to everyday tasks, um, uh, and it is—it's resulting in my my view. It's gonna—it's gonna result in long-term harm. 
And with COVID-19 halting international travel, how does this policy affect the migration process for people who are wanting to bring their loved ones here? Well, COVID's had um, quite a a unique um, and unusual impact. We've seen, um, firstly, a significant delay in processing of visas, but we've also seen visas not being granted. And where visas have been granted, um, there have, of course, been the border closures that have prevented, um, initially prevented people from actually coming into the country. But more recently, even where a, a person is exempt from those um, those restrictions. Um, actually being able to get on a plane um, and not having um, those flights cancelled over and over again. So um, obviously we're hoping that this is um, this is short term, but um, but we'll just have to wait and see. So what are your thoughts on the statements that these changes are reminiscent of the White Australia policy? Um, I think that the certainly these new English language requirements, there's an unfortunate similarity. Um, if I could maybe make this an- analogy, um, one of the requirements to satisfying the requirements is that a person uh, demonstrates that they have what's called functional English, which in, in the law is a, a defined term. And one way of demonstrating that you have functional English without having to actually demonstrate your ability to speak the language is if you hold the passport of either the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, or Ireland. Um, So I suppose the listeners can draw their own uh, conclusions from that. Wow. Absolutely. What are some of the ways that migrants or sponsors can reach out for help if they are affected by these changes next year? Um, well, I would strongly encourage anybody who has to go through that process to um, to get some advice. Um, they can obviously contact the organisation that I work for, the Immigration Advice and Rights Centre. We provide free um, advice and assistance um, to people who can't otherwise afford to pay for um, legal help. Um, and there's also um, uh, information sheets that are available on our website that people can download for free. And once these changes um, come into effect, we'll obviously update those and they will also provide guidance to people. Wonderful. We'll be sure to tweet out links to all those resources you've just named. Thank you so much for your time, Ali. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. That was Ali Mojtahadi from the Immigration Advice and Rights Centre walking us through the new English language tests for those seeking an Australian visa. Stay tuned because after the break, we're talking to journalist Ange McCormack about her explosive investigation into Tinder's failure to stop sexual predators on its dating app. We'll be right back after a track. This is Not About You by Haiku Hands. You're listening to Backchat on FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Love it or hate it, we know how fun Tinder can be. But it can also be a breeding ground for sexual predators. Have we ever thought about what happens if you report someone on Tinder? A recent Four Corners and Triple J hack investigation found that Tinder actually enables perpetrators to escape responsibility through the app. 
and less than a quarter of user misconduct reports were answered by customer support. Ange McCormack is one of the journalists behind this story. Because, before she joins us on air, just a heads up that this interview does contain references to sexual assault. Good morning, Ange. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, how are you going? Good, thank you. Um, what prompted this investigation? Um, this really came from the Triple J audience. So um, earlier in the year, we were we were hearing about people's experiences, young people's experiences about dating apps, and um, we were hearing that men and women had a really different experience out there in the dating scene. Um, so we decided to investigate further and put out a crowdsource investigation. It's basically like a survey um, where we asked people what they were experiencing in the dating world. Um, 400 people, more than 400 people responded to that. And what came out of that was just, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of experiences of sexual assault, sexual harassment, terrible behaviour that was happening on dating apps that, um, you know, our listeners were saying was unsafe and made them feel uncomfortable. So from there, that's how we turned all of those experiences into the Four Corners and Triple J Hack investigation that we saw on Monday. So what was the most interesting finding to you? Um, I think what really shocked me, um, and and this is saying something because, you know, there were more than, you know, there were hundreds of stories of really horrible experiences, um, but what really shocked me was hearing multiple say that they had experienced something awful by going on a Tinder date or a Bumble date or a Hinge date, um, you know, possibly a sexual assault. And then when they had tried to report this sexual assault to the app, um, they had found that the person that had done it to them had unmatched them, which I, when I when I first heard about that, I was like, that is just the most insane and horrible thing to go through, um, you know, to have someone that was at your fingertips on your phone, potentially with evidence that you could take to the police, to then essentially disappear. Um, that really shocked me. And what shocked me more was that it wasn't just one person that told us that. There was actually, um, you know... The whole handful of people taught us that same experience, and and that was yeah that that really that really shocked me. And you've mentioned that they were unmatching with the person that they were speaking to to escape responsibility. What are some other ways that these perpetrators are avoiding um, being caught? Um, that's a big one for sure. Um, I, I guess it's just also you know. When, when we talk about these assaults, it's also not just in the realm of dating apps. Um, you know, they're, they're shirking responsibility by the whole system, the justice system that pretty much does not favour um, survivors and victims. Um, so, so the unmatching function was the big one that we found um, that perpetrators were using within the app. But we we're also finding all kinds of failures um, in terms of policing and um, and that sort of thing when survivors were trying to get justice or just let someone know that this had happened to them. So how has Tinder been responding to users when they do report sexual predators? Um, we found a really patchwork uh, series of responses from Tinder and Match Group, which is the parent company. Um, so, you, you know, you have the option when you're in an app like Tinder to open up someone's profile um, and report them, whether it's because you, um, you know, they sent you an awful message or if something happened in the real world. Um, when something has happened in the real world, like a sexual assault, we've found that, you know, 
I think it was about almost 50 of our respondents to that survey earlier this year had reported a sexual offence to Tinder and only 11 of them received any kind of response. So the vast majority didn't receive any response at all from Tinder, no you know, follow-up, no email, no nothing. And the 11 people that said that they did receive something, um, they described, pretty much all of them described a generic response, something that didn't really um, satisfy them in terms of what they were looking for. They just wanted to, you know, get an email or something to say, you know, we're sorry to hear what happened to you. Um, you know, we're going to remove this person's profile or we're actually going to investigate this. All they got really was a pretty generic um, response which, you know, a lot of people were saying re-traumatised them further. It made them feel like what happened to them wasn't significant, even though it definitely was. Um, it made them feel like, well, if even the app isn't going to take this seriously, should I even bother go to police about this? Because I just feel kind of, like, worthless right now. Um, so so that's really what our, um, our listeners were experiencing in terms of reporting to the app and finding that the response was really, really inadequate for the gravity of what they were going to the app with. And what can stop survivors of sexual abuse from reporting? To the police or to the app? Both. Both. Yeah, I think, um, and, you know, we, we've talked to so many survivors in this investigation and um, it, it's kind of twofold. On one hand, you know, the systems in place are flimsy. As I've said, the, the Tinder reporting features uh, definitely um, need improvement. They're not clear. They're not, um, they're not, people aren't getting back to them. So they're not, there's not really much an incentive to report to the app. So there's that. Um, and, and the same goes to the police. You know, it's quite a, you talk to anyone that has tried to report a sexual assault to police and they will almost always tell you about how um, clunky that process is. But the other thing is, um, when someone has been assaulted after meeting someone through a dating app, there's a there's a massive stigma attached to that. Any kind of sexual assault, there's a stigma. There's difficulty talking about it. Um, especially young women tend to blame themselves for what has gone on. Add the element of I met this person through Tinder or a dating app, and that gives survivors a whole extra element of self-blame, um, you know, people would describe feeling, you know, like, well, I must have been uh, complicit in some way because I matched with him and I went to his house or whatever. And that, that's completely not true, but it, it adds to the burden of guilt that um, survivors and victims have when they're ready to go to police or to the app and they just think, well, you know, maybe, maybe I deserve this in some way. Some people really think like that. It's a real massive burden. And Sometimes they just think, well, I, I actually just want to move on from this experience. I don't want to get any kind of authority involved. Um, let's just move on and, and not take it anywhere, which is kind of understandable from a survivor's perspective. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio, 94.5 FM. If you've just tuned in, we're talking to journalist Ange McCormack about her investigation into Tinder and how it fo- how it fails to stop sexual predators from using the platform. Um, so earlier this year, Tinder introduced features like the panic button and photo verification. How effective have these measures actually been? Yeah, so the um, the panic button, and I, I hesitate to even call it, to be generous enough to Tinder to call it a panic button. It's this 
um, sort of plug-in service called Noonlight, and it's actually only available in the US right now, so it's not relevant to Australian users at all. But um, basically what it does is it can connect um, users to emergency services if they sort of hit this button during a real-life experience and then it'll go to the Noonlight workers, which will then go to potentially to emergency services. And... You know, essentially, it's quite a convoluted um, process, in my opinion. Everyone kind of has a panic button on their phone. It's called calling triple zero. So, um, you know, it, it's it's at least some ways in trying to protect users, and that's a good thing. But it's not available in the Australian market, so we would like to see it come here. Um, the other user, that, uh, the other feature that you mentioned was the photo identification. Um, feature that's actually rolled out on Tinder this week. Um, that's an optional feature. So basically users can um, verify their photos to confirm that um, their photos are who they say they are. And this is basically to stop things like scamming and catfishing so that people know that, you know, um, if you swipe on someone, that's actually them. It's not a bot. Um, but as I said, that's an optional feature. So if you do um, go through the feature, it uses AI to verify your face and your photos. Um, you can get a blue tick, but not everyone has to do it. So um, experts have said, you know, if, if this isn't a mandatory thing, if every user doesn't have to be vetted in this way, what's the point? Because um, some users won't do it because they can't be bothered and then it just becomes... You know, someone, some people will have the tick, some people won't, and then it kind of reduces the um, significance of that feature in, in its whole. So, um, yeah, that's where we're at with those features. Moonlight hasn't arrived in Australia yet, but we do have the photo ID. And with everything we now know about Tinder, how has the company managed to avoid responsibility for so long? Yeah, I think I think this one is probably twofold. I think... Um, it, it kind of goes to to what I was talking about before about the stigma of sexual assault, especially when it's happened through a dating app. It basically means that this has been a topic that people don't really talk about. Um, what struck me when we were investigating this and talking to survivors was that people were, you know, so happy that we were finally investigating this because it's been one of these big taboos. So that that kind of stigma has actually protected this conversation from happening. Um, so, so that's how they've avoided responsibility and accountability because nobody has really been um, looking into this in, uh, you know, in a significant way. Um, but the second aspect of it, I think, is they're a multi-billion dollar company. Um, they're from the startup world. These are companies that kind of think they're above the law in some ways because they started in such a, you know, sort of bootstrap way. They came out, Tinder came out of a college campus and now it's earning, you know, more than $2 billion a year. Um, so by the nature of the size of its company and, and how it operates, I think it, it kind of just sees itself as one of this, these behemoths that doesn't really have to... Um, you know, follow laws and protocols in the same way that we might expect other companies to because they're, in a, they're an app and they're, you know, from this world that is, is very nimble and, um, you know, like the, the startups, um, you know, iconic phrase is like move fast and breathe is like move fast and break things. They're, you know, they, they really play into that idea of just being... Um, being their own kind of agent. Um, but I think what's shown us after this week is that that's really unsustainable and people, especially as users, are calling for them to change. 
Thank you so much for your time, Angie. And this is an incredible investigation and report. Uh, I know as a woman who uses these dating apps, I found it very insightful and very uh, just, you know, just I felt heard and seen. So thank you so much for your time. No worries. Thank you, guys. That was journalist Angie McCormack speaking about her investigation into Tinder's sexual assault response. Well, that's all we have time for on the show this week. A massive thank you to our guests, Ali Mojtahedi and Ange McCormack. We've got a text from Daniel in St. John's saying the info from our English visa language was helpful for them and their partner. So you can listen back to that interview on our podcast coming out on Monday on Spotify. This episode of Backchat was brought to you by Beck Manavog, Charles Rushforth and Nicole Ilyagueva. We'll catch you 9.30am next Saturday. But before we go, we have a song. Uh, okay, look, I really wanted to play this very cool French song and I was practicing my accent for it. But alas, Mercury Retrograde has <laughs> ruined my life and we're playing a different song today. Still a good one. It's called Fair Chance. It's by Thundercat. Have a lovely weekend, everyone.